Hey guys, thanks for listening to Canadian Cannabis Update. We're a Canadian-based podcast that gives leaders and organizations an opportunity to tell their stories and share information. Before we begin today, a quick shout out to our sponsors. Firstly, Harvest Medicine. So if you're curious about medical cannabis, check them out because they're a patient-centric clinic which offers free medical assessments for people just like you looking to explore how medical cannabis can help improve your life. To learn more, you can check them out and book your free consultation with Harvest Medicine by visiting H. HMED.ca. That's their website. It's HMED.ca. Harvest Medicine. And we're also sponsored by Grow Tech Labs. Now, the mission of Grow Tech Labs is to bring together a new generation of diverse cannabis sector innovators from across Canada and around the globe. Grow Tech Labs is located in Vancouver and helps entrepreneurs develop market-leading products for the recreational and medical cannabis industries by combining access to financing and with delivery of world-class programs rooted in innovation, entrepreneurship, and mentorship. GrowTech Labs intends to expand British Columbia's influence as a global cannabis capital. And hey, if you would like to sponsor Canadian Cannabis Update, reach out to me at CannabisUpdate.ca and I will send you a media kit. All right. A little while ago, I was reading articles online and came upon Dr. David L. Nathan. I was impressed by what he had to say, not just from a medical perspective, but by his insights on cannabis legalization policy as well. So, as I often do, I fired Dr. Nathan an interview request, and he quickly got back to me saying, sure. Now, if you're already aware of all the things that Dr. David L. Nathan is involved with, you'd know that preparing for an interview with a person like this wasn't going to be easy. I wanted to ask him about both social justice issues, which, by the way, he's very passionate about, and, of course, cannabis from a medical perspective. So we did jump around a little bit with the Q&A. So with that said, the whole time I was interviewing him, I couldn't help but think just how important this recording will be. And honestly, I could have spoken to Dr. Nathan for three or four hours and continued to be captivated by everything he had to say. I'm pretty sure about that. Anyway, before I let it roll, I'll just say this. If you listen to this interview and you still don't think that cannabis should be legalized, then I'm not really sure you ever will. Thanks to Dr. Nathan for doing this, and I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I did producing it. We are here today with Dr. David L. Nathan. He is an MD and a psychiatrist, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, uh, Dr. Nathan. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Can you begin by telling us about yourself professionally? Sort of set the table for us. Who are you? Sure. Uh, Well, like you said, I'm a psychiatrist. I've been in private practice in Princeton, New Jersey for over 20 years. Uh, I'm also an educator. I'm the director of continuing medical education uh, for the Penn Medicine Princeton Health System, which is uh, an affiliate of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, And I'm uh, also a clinical associate professor at the Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. And I should say on matters of cannabis, I uh, do not necessarily reflect or speak for the views of uh, either of those institutions that I just mentioned. Uh, I'm a writer on many topics in history and science, uh, and I am, for the purposes of today's interview, an advocate and now also a consultant on issues of cannabis policy in the cannabis industry. Wow. How did you become interested in medical cannabis? Well, sure. Um, Originally, what I was interested in was not so much medical cannabis as drug policy. Uh, And I would say I was first inspired as a medical student uh, by 
reading an article by Ethan Nadelman, who was at that time a Princeton professor and went on to uh, create the Drug Policy Alliance, which is uh, still uh, one of the largest drug policy organizations in the world. Uh, and reading about his take on the drug war really was one of the few true epiphanies in my life, where I realized that having grown up in the 1980s and 90s, that the drug war that had made a lot of sense because of our seeming desire to create a drug-free world, mm -hmm. uh, that the whole thing was a house of cards and that the drug war was a terrible idea. And building from that in my residency, thinking that I had this better, more enlightened view of drug use and uh, how to approach problematic drug use, I was surprised to learn that a lot of my teachers who work in the area of substance use disorders were themselves drug warriors and that they wanted to fight the drug war. And I couldn't understand this discrepancy between the notion of wanting to help individuals with who, who had drug problems and then wanting to also uh, see them prosecuted. Mm -hmm. So that really got me concerned. In over 20 years of private practice, I, of course, did see lives ruined by drug use, which made me more understand where these doctors were coming from. Mm -hmm. But I also saw how many lives were being destroyed by the prohibition of drugs, and particularly the prohibition of cannabis, mm -hmm. because... While I was seeing a number of people whose lives were changed when they were arrested for the possession of a small amount of cannabis, I saw very few people whose lives were actually in any way uh, damaged by the use of the drug itself. And so that really started to, to get to me. And I then at one point decided, you know what, I need to write about this. And so right. I write, as I said, I write about a lot of things and I wrote about this issue of the need for change in cannabis policy. And from there, it became a bunch of speaking engagements. And then I was asked to join the legalization movement in New Jersey. And then that spread to the whole country. And from that point, I also had to become a real expert on cannabis itself. And in doing so, I then found myself in, you know, pulling on to the highway of uh, medical cannabis and everything that was happening on that side of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's my connection in a roundabout way from policy to medical cannabis. Now to, uh, I guess, extend on that a little bit, um, I read your bio online, uh, and one of the lines that jumped out at me was that you're a leading advocate for evidence-based changes in drug policy. Now, when it comes to cannabis, is that difficult? Is there a lot of evidence-based uh, information out there that you can use to push your policy ideas ahead, or is everything anecdotal sure, for the most well, part? Yeah, well, the policy end of it is very much supported by the evidence because uh, and I'm, of course, United States-centric uh, in my uh, uh, of read of the literature and also my advocacy of policy, though uh, I, I certainly have had some interaction with uh, our neighbors to the north. In looking at our cannabis policy, what is most salient in the literature is how much research has been done into the potential harms of cannabis, right. which is, of course, only half the story. You can talk about the harms and not talk about the benefits, but that, of course, is where the literature is focused because in the United States as a Schedule One substance under the U.S. Controlled Substances Act, there is really no way to do any good research on the benefits of cannabis, but it's very easy to get funding and approval for studies that look at the harm. Mm. And uh, the harm was quite clearly not as severe as I had been taught growing up and as, as had been implied in our medical school um, education. 
And so actually the evidence is very clear on the policy side as to what should, you know, what changes may be needed in cannabis policy. Uh, I can tell you in the United States Controlled Substances Act, there have to be three conditions met to make a drug as severely restricted as cannabis is. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, of course, puts it in the same category as heroin and uh, LSD and ecstasy and psilocybin. Uh, so cannabis being a Schedule One substance, that implies that it has no uh, currently accepted medical benefit. Mm-hmm. It implies that it has an intolerable uh, toxicity profile, that the side effects are much worse than any potential benefit. And third, that it has a very high potential for abuse, or uh, I prefer the term misuse, because okay. it's not the dr- it's not the drug that's being abused. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's being misused. So. In that respect, cannabis failed on all three terms. The toxicity is not bad. Um, It has a low potential for misuse. And uh, as we see from the limited studies that have been done, it's got a number of clear medical uses. So that was a major influence in my thinking about uh, medical cannabis. All right. But I mean, it's clear to me that you're an advocate for cannabis legalization from a social justice perspective. Uh, But now to change gears, though, as a medical doctor and a psychiatrist, how do you feel about its use? Well, so I take a a dispassionate view of its use overall. Um, I don't, you know, drugs are drugs, whether it's Haldol or heroin and whether it's uh, aspirin or cannabis. Medications will have benefits and they will have uh, costs and risks. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in my personal experience as a physician, I'm, I treat only adults. And so I can see how a small number of individuals who use cannabis who are in my psychiatric practice are indeed harmed by it, especially those who have uh, psychotic disorders. Mm-hmm. I also see some who report that it's been very beneficial uh, either for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or for anxiety. But for the most part, what I find is that my psychiatric patients' health tends to be unaffected. You know, the, the majority of patients who use cannabis on an occasional basis do not find that it really has that much of an effect on their overall mental health at all. Mm, interesting. Your answer for this will probably be talk to your doctor, but how can a person know when or when not to use cannabis? Like, are there general rules that you would abide by? Sure. Um, well, if, if you're talking about uh, medical use, uh, then uh, then I would say you you follow the facts, and yeah, you you really should get uh, a medical opinion on what it's used for, because the things that we think that it would be used for, uh, sometimes the evidence doesn't fully support it. So, mm-hmm. for example, uh, one of the first uses of cannabis in the modern era was for glaucoma, and it does indeed reduce the uh, pressure inside the eyes that causes glaucoma, but it only does so for a very short time. And so while it can, in theory, be a treatment for glaucoma, uh, for most people, it won't relieve the pressure consistently enough unless you're dosing all day, and that's impossible because you'd be needing to do that while you were asleep. So it may not be the best treatment for glaucoma, and only by talking to a doctor could you know that. Uh, while on the other hand, there are other 
things uh, such as chronic pain and chemotherapy-induced nausea, vomiting, lack of appetite uh, that it is actually quite useful for. So it does, of course, pay to talk to a doctor. I can talk about the groups that should not use cannabis, and that's a very circumscribed group. Uh, first is, um, and, and it may go without saying, but for teens and for children, for teenagers and children, adolescents and below, there is really no safe way in which they can use non-medical cannabis. And so what I say about that is that, you know, you really just want to wait as long as possible to start it. While many teenagers are unaffected by the use of cannabis recreationally, uh, it's not something you can count on. And you don't know if you're going to be one of those people that are, as reflected in the evidence, going to have a decrease in your motivation or a drop in your grades and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so you really want to avoid non-medical use before adulthood. Uh, That's one group. The second group that I really focus on, especially as a psychiatrist, is individuals who are predisposed to having psychotic disorders. So, of course, if you've ever had psychosis, cannabis itself is really not a good idea because the whole plant contains THC and THC can make psychosis worse or can even trigger an episode. Mm -hmm. Substance use disorders, that one is really tricky because there are those uh, for whom the use of any substance seems to whet their appetite for any other that had been their preferred drug. So if you've had a problem with alcohol and you're using cannabis, you may actually be putting yourself at some risk of going back to the alcohol. Having said that, we're also seeing very clear evidence, especially in the United States, where we have you know an incredibly uh, dramatic crisis of opioid overdoses, we find that there are many people who use cannabis as an exit drug from opioids. And uh, we can't ignore that, especially given the number of people uh, who are dying every year Mm -hmm. uh, from it. Uh, So substance use disorders, individuals need to consider very seriously the value of cannabis and and the potential downside of it. Uh, And then the last group I would point to is pregnant women. Uh, and lactating women, not because we have any established harm from cannabis, but as for many drugs, we don't really know uh, whether there are potential effects on the fetus or the baby in women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. And so we just recommend no non-medical use of cannabis uh, for pregnant women. Okay. Well, some of the cliche side effects that detractors of cannabis uh, would suggest you can have from consuming it would be things like being lazy, um, eating too much, uh, sleeping too much. Uh, But those who support cannabis would say the opposite. Well, actually, it helps me to relax. It helps me to sleep. It enhances my appetite. So the follow-up question, I think, which is important, uh, there's a bit of debate on it, is uh, do you believe that all cannabis use is medical, whether users realize it or not? Uh, That's a great question. What I would say is that there is really a spectrum uh, from uh, medical to non-medical use. So individuals using cannabis for medical reasons may find that it just makes them feel better. And I have friends and relatives who have used cannabis uh, for clear medical reasons. They never used it before they had the medical need. And once they started using it, they talked about how great it was. And I do think it's possible in part for the improvement from cannabis to be related to the fact that people just feel better when they take it. Mm. Uh, And while we may think that that sounds somehow 
distasteful that you need a drug to feel better. Uh, the reality is if you're suffering from cancer or from uh, severe pain and you find something that just makes life more tolerable, even if it's an indirect effect on those symptoms and gives you an improved quality of life, I think that's legitimate. Mm -hmm. And so you may see a kind of a general feeling of well-being in people who are using cannabis for medical reasons. Okay. Uh, on the inverse of that, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Julia Arnston, uh, who is in New York, did a study of individuals coming out of so-called recreational dispensaries in legalized states in the United States and mm -hmm. asking them about why they were purchasing it. And even at these dispensaries where they could have gone the medical route and said they're going the uh, general retail sales route mm -hmm. uh, and buying it as they would buy wine. The people coming out, the majority of them said that they were taking it for some kind of medical purpose, the common ones being what you might guess, which mm -hmm. is uh, uh, pain uh, or difficulty sleeping, mm -hmm. right, anxiety. Uh, and those are uses that even individuals who say they take it for non-medical reasons uh, will cite as being medical benefits of it. Okay. And so it's really a spectrum between medical and non-medical use that I don't think even it's that useful of a distinction to talk about recreational use because uh, I think that a lot of adults who are using cannabis uh, ostensibly for non-medical reasons are really benefiting from it medically. Okay. And um, professionally, do you ever prescribe medical cannabis? And if so, are things like terpenes, cannabinoids, and other compounds within the cannabis plant considered by you, or is it too early in the game for that? Well, so there, you're asking two questions. One is whether I uh, recommend it for individuals with psychiatric disorders. You know, the main group for which I would recommend it is people with post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. Even for that category, there's not enough really good research, again, because the uh, government in its wisdom has prevented uh, controlled trials mm -hmm. of cannabis uh, for PTSD. But we have enough anecdotal evidence uh, from military veterans, for example, who say that uh, cannabis has really saved their lives. And when they say that, what they're talking about is they were ready to kill themselves because of the uh, severity of their post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And cannabis has made their lives tolerable. And so for those individuals, um, it's clear that it's been helpful. There are nonetheless conflicting studies that you'll hear from people who are against the use of medical cannabis, which is an odd thing to me to oppose uh, a drug just on general principles, but they do. And one of the things that they'll cite is that there are studies that show that it doesn't help with PTSD. Well, that mm. may be so, but that doesn't mean it doesn't help some individuals. They're looking at populations. Uh, so PTSD is a major indication for psychiatrists. And the second one is anxiety. There too, we don't have a lot of very good evidence like doctors like to see. For mm. example, it's a prospective double-blind placebo-controlled study where they follow people over a long period of time to establish whether there's a difference between those who use it and those who don't. We don't have that evidence, but what we do have is a lot of individuals saying that, oh, there's no question that it helps them with their anxiety and they've been taking it for years mm -hmm. and it has been helpful for them. I can also tell you I've got other patients who will use cannabis and find it makes them extremely anxious. And so yeah. obviously for those individuals, it's not helpful. Um, 
and then to the second part of your question, which is about the particular makeup of the plant. You know, there may be uh, cannabis, uh, medical cannabis specialists among doctors who really have a grasp on what ratios of different cannabinoids or cannabinoids and terpenes or cannabinoids, terpenes and flavonoids uh, and phenols that are useful uh, in a certain combination. But what I would hazard to say is that we don't yet know enough to know um, which cannabinoids in what combinations lead to particular effects. We do know some basic differences. Uh, So for the two main cannabinoids we talk about, THC and CBD, uh, we know that they have different actions and that in different combinations it can yield uh, more than the sum of the parts. Uh, And we call that, of course, the entourage effect. I'm sure your listeners know about that. Mm -hmm. And what we don't know is as much as we want to know about discrete compounds uh, within cannabis, um, so for example, CBG and CBN mm-hmm. uh, are are in larger percentages than some other cannabinoids and, and uh, terpenes, uh, over time we are going to get a much better idea of the combinations of these discrete compounds and particular strains when they can be well reproduced generation after generation of that plant to see which uh, strains and which combinations of these cannabinoids and terpenes are beneficial for particular conditions and not just particular conditions, but particular individuals, because of course, uh, everyone's response to the cannabis can be different, even if it's for the same indication. Mm, No doubt. Now, this seems like a very natural time to jump over to the topic of CBD, which could probably be a Mm -hmm. podcast all on its own. But do you have any concerns? Let's start off with the potential negative side. Do you have any concerns with the CBD market that seems to be surging lately? Uh, concerns with it? Well, absolutely, because it is um, not well regulated. Uh, so that means that products that we're seeing here in the United States uh, that can be sold in supermarkets and convenience stores right. uh, often will say they have CBD and don't, they don't even pretend to quantify how much is in, uh, for example, CBD water. And CBD water is an interesting thing because CBD is a compound that is not soluble in water. It's soluble in uh, oil, uh, so how they get it into the water uh, without you know some special process and those things exist. But I cannot imagine that some of the companies uh, that you know are selling stuff in convenience stores have really uh, got the technology to to make that work. So it's not well regulated. Products may not be properly labeled or assayed, uh, and there's really a lack of evidence for most of the uses of mm-hmm. CBD. Uh, and there's a feeling among cannabis specialists that THC is usually, if not always, needed to get some effect. And I'm not singling out THC itself, but rather uh, a cannabinoid that has a very uh, agonistic or promoting effect of the cannabinoid receptors. Mm -hmm. That is not something that CBD does. CBD has kind of a mixed and balancing effect on the endocannabinoid system. And as such, it may have some use Uh, And I can talk about a psychiatric uh, application, interestingly, but for the most part, it may be that CBD by itself is is not uh, an adequate treatment uh, and that it's not clear how much it would be placebo for a lot of the purposes that people...
can tell you that as a psychiatrist, there is one very interesting use of CBD that has come up just in the last couple of years, and that is, interestingly, as a treatment for schizophrenia. Uh, or for psychotic disorders. You know, you hear about, and I have already said in this podcast, that cannabis is really contraindicated in individuals who are predisposed to psychosis or themselves have had psychotic disorders. Uh, however, it is now seen that if you take very high doses of CBD, and I mean as opposed to the 10 or 20 milligrams that people will get in typical CBD preparations, taking a thousand milligrams a day, that's a gram of CBD a day, which wow. is actually not just uh, hard to find, it's also expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a very large quantity. You take 500 milligrams twice a day and in that kind of dosing, there's some evidence that it may actually treat psychosis and treat psychotic disorders, which is not completely unexpected uh, when you think of way in which CBD can be a kind of foil to THC. And if THC makes things worse, it stands to reason that CBD might make things better. And there's now actually evidence for that. And so I have had patients on CBD. I wouldn't say I've had enough of them to know whether I'm seeing the effect that was reported in this important article in the American Journal of Psychiatry. Mm -hmm. uh, but nonetheless, it may actually have that application just by itself. Oh, interesting. Are there currently any other cannabinoids that you personally are interested in learning more about? Anything that's on your radar? Uh, all of them. I would say all of them. <laughs> Starting with the cannabinoids, uh, but also terpenoids and flavonoids. And you know, there are many compounds in cannabis. Uh, and some people see that as uh, doctors, especially as being kind of a scary thing because, you know, there's so many things in there. We don't know what it's doing. Mm -hmm. Well, we do know what it's doing because, again, we very well studied the uh, potential negative effects of cannabis. And uh, we, you know, other than the uh, examples that I've listed are somewhat underwhelmed by the potential toxicity of cannabis. Cannabis is a fairly non-toxic plant. At the same time, all of these minor components along with THC and CBD show a lot of potential. So CBN, uh, cannabinol, and CBG, uh, cannabigerol, that have properties of their own that may differ from both THC and CBD and how wonderful would it be to be able to look at those compounds in isolation and then also consider the effect that they may have uh, in combination with other cannabinoids to yield desired effects. Cannabinoids are, are particular to cannabis. The terpenes are found in all kinds of plants and right. so, you know, limonene is found in lemons and pinene is found in pine nuts. And we know that they are compounds that also have some binding to receptors like the cannabis uh, receptors, the endocannabinoid receptors in our bodies. And so even the terpenes that seem like inert non-medical compounds may have some medical properties that need uh, greater research. Nice. Okay. I want to jump back over to policy for a moment um, and get your perspective on this. From a policy perspective, should people previously involved in the illegal market be given an opportunity to participate in the legal market? There's a big debate about that here in Canada. Do you have any perspective on that? I do. And I feel that they should absolutely be given uh, that opportunity. And uh, I would say particularly for those communities that have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. And so in 
all of North America, the war on drugs uh, for the past almost 100 years has really been a war on uh, communities of color Mm -hmm. as much as anything else. And it's been those communities that have been disproportionately affected by the drug war. And so insofar as there is a larger number of individuals in those communities who have been prosecuted either for just minor cannabis possession offenses or more serious cannabis offenses with uh, sales or distribution or cultivation, those individuals need to be brought into the new industry for a couple of reasons. One is simply as a matter of social justice. Uh, and that is that, you know, we've been for so long prosecuting something that never should have been against the law in the first place. We shouldn't penalize those people for having done something that we now deem as being a perfectly legal activity. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that we're, you know, somebody who sold cannabis and uh, was involved in murders should be completely absolved of all of their crimes. But for those who were not involved in any other kinds of crimes, I think that any drug offenses related to their cannabis use or sales, uh, if anything, should be a qualifying trait for them in their potential to be hired because they understand the industry. After alcohol prohibition in the United States ended, a lot of the bootleggers came in from the cold and they were welcomed back. And I think, you know, a major difference from then until now is that a lot of those bootleggers were white people. And I think it was easier to imagine them as upright citizens. And we somehow have this bias about communities of color that, well, they're just up to no good. Well, we would say that because they were doing things that uh, were against the law. Those laws were not being enforced against white people, but they were being enforced in communities of color. Mm -hmm. So those individuals uh, who have not only were the individuals incarcerated or given criminal records for cannabis offenses, but also those people who lived around them and had to suffer the consequences of friends, neighbors, and family members uh, being caught up in the justice system. Mm. Those communities need to, uh, need to see the benefits of cannabis legalization. Interesting perspective. I love that. Um, you know, it's funny, since you mentioned alcohol, uh, no names mentioned, but I think that there are some companies in particular i'm thinking like southern whiskey uh that actually brag about their history in the bootlegging industry do you know what i mean it's part of their marketing scheme like they sure. this is where they came from and Absolutely. this is how old their company is and how they survived and their product is so strong uh so yeah it's it's a really good uh, reflection really good analogy to, to talk about that and and what's happening with cannabis wow And it's also, you know, for them, it's a point of pride, it's a point of patriotism, because, you know, Canada and the United States, we pride ourselves on our freedoms, Mm -hmm. uh, and the prohibition of cannabis is very much a a blot on the history of freedoms in North America. And uh, I do think rightly for us to embrace cannabis legalization as being a return to greater personal liberty is very appropriate. And I think that's why cannabis legalization has become a bipartisan issue. You Mm -hmm. think of it as maybe being a liberal issue of uh, people who are progressive wanting to see improvements in communities affected by the drug war. And that's certainly a lot of where I'm coming from. But you also see libertarians and people who are really strong advocates of personal freedom 
urging cannabis legalization on on that basis as well. Uh, And so it's a libertarian issue. It's a humanitarian issue, and it's an issue of personal freedom. Can you bring us Canadians up to speed? What are your thoughts on federal legalization in the U.S.? Like, what needs to happen in the next few years? Sure. Well, right now it's state by state. Mm -hmm. And so my organization, Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, is testifying uh, in many states around the country. So I gave testimony in Vermont last week. Uh, I've done several rounds of testimony here in New Jersey. I've spoken in uh, Rhode Island and Connecticut and Illinois. And then, of course, not before state legislatures. I've been all around the country because the changes are coming state by state, uh, given the authority that's granted to the states. Now, at the same time, all of the state laws are are directly in conflict with U.S. federal law, uh, and that's the way it's going to remain until one of several things happens. One is that uh, the FDA, in concert with the DEA, can reschedule cannabis out of Schedule 1. I'll tell you that doctors like me, we don't want to see it rescheduled. We want to see it descheduled. We want to see it taken out of the Controlled Substances Act entirely, because to reschedule it still plays restrictions on it that will make it difficult for us to make cannabis legal for all adults to purchase. And that's ultimately, regardless of what you think of the medical merits of cannabis use, uh, it shouldn't be legal for adults, uh, for consenting adults at all. Uh, And so the FDA and the DEA could de-schedule cannabis and take it out entirely, which is uh, the status of alcohol. Alcohol is not part of the Controlled Substances Act and neither should cannabis be. Mm. Uh, Now, the difficulty is that the FDA says that we need to do so in concert with the DEA and the DEA says we could only do so in concert with the FDA. And so both of them are kind of passing the responsibility along and the net effect is that nothing's changing. Now, the U.S. system has the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. Uh, The judicial branches don't really come in so much here because it's Nobody has ever been able to make the case that the laws against cannabis use are unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. So we haven't really heard much from them. But from the executive branch, uh, which is in charge of the FDA and the DEA, the president can encourage change and can uh, try to direct change from above. Uh, Barack Obama looked like he might have been poised to do so. Donald Trump in his campaigning said that he didn't want to mess with state law and his choice of Attorney General Jeff Sessions seemed to argue against that, but the new Attorney General seems to be more sympathetic to letting states do their thing. Mm. But the executive branch certainly could play a role, just hasn't done so. The last group that we're looking at, and I think this is where the most promise is right now, is the United States Congress, the uh, legislative branch, can pass laws that will take cannabis out of the Controlled Substances Act. It can regulate it, and it can at least make it legal for the states to regulate. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's really where greatest hope is right now. Uh, Now, we're talking about, I'm now talking about full legalization, 
there are other issues. There are issues of the inability of cannabis businesses in the United States to utilize banking services, uh, which results in dangerous situations of a lot of cash being handled and armored cars needing to pick up cash at cannabis businesses Mm. and drive that cash directly to Federal Reserve banks to put that cash into the Internal Revenue Service as payment of taxes for what the federal government regards as an illegal activity, yet the states are making state legal. And so we've got a very messy system around banking, mm. and that needs to be cleaned up. And I think that Congress uh, is is poised to act on that this year, and that would be great. Uh, we also need uh, the government to take the lead on expungement of criminal records relating to cannabis offenses. And I believe that the government should be taking positive steps in ensuring diversity in the industry. So hiring people who may have criminal records related to drug offenses and trying to see that communities that haven't traditionally had access to capital, that being inner city communities of color, that they do have access to the jobs and the wealth that could be generated in the new legal cannabis industry. So there's a lot that the federal government can do. For now, it's being done at the state level, and the federal government has more or less left it alone. And I'm hoping that's the minimum that we can hope to expect in the coming years of federal leadership. Wow, solid answer. Okay, 75% of my listeners are based out of Canada. Do you have any final thoughts or any words you'd like to uh, say to the listeners of this podcast in particular? Absolutely. Uh, To the 75% of your listeners who are Canadian, I would like to say thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for taking the steps that uh, I think Americans needed to see in order for us to get more comfortable with the idea of nationwide legalization. Canada has been progressive on this issue all along. Uh, The sky has indeed not fallen in Canada since October 17th. I actually made a trip up to Montreal not that long ago, and while the Quebec state monopoly has not been completely efficient and uh, there have been very long lines outside the dispensaries, nonetheless, uh, people's attitudes there are changing. The nation of Canada is not falling apart, and it even looks like the use of cannabis has not changed that drastically among adults since legalization has occurred. Uh, So to your listeners, I want to say keep up the good fight. Uh, For those of you in Canada, be good uh, citizens and show Americans how how it can be done uh, and show the ways in which the Canadian economy uh, will benefit from the change in regulation there. And hopefully the United States will follow. Nice. How can people find out more about you? Where are you located online? Sure. So the organization that I founded, uh, because there was no such organization, was called is called Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, and uh, we are the first and only uh, national and really international physicians organization dedicated to the legalization and above all the effective regulation of cannabis in the United States and now around the world. And there is a group in Canada, um, Doctors for Cannabis Regulations is based in the United States, but we have a lot of doctors in Canada and around the world um, 
you can go to Doctors for Cannabis Regulations website, which is DFCR, Doctors for Cannabis Regulation.org. DFCR.org. You can read all about us. Um, we very much appreciate the support of uh, physicians, but also other allied health professionals and uh, the public at large. And the way I see it is that uh, much as the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Repeal in the United States helped bring about the end of alcohol prohibition, and no group could speak better to the harms of alcohol prohibition than the women who saw the negative effect on society when they were supposed to be the beneficiaries of a decrease in domestic violence. In the United States, it's doctors who really best understand the medical effects of cannabis. Uh, it is doctors who are, in theory, the people who should be supporting the ban on cannabis, when in reality, doctors who understand about cannabis and uh, its public health and social justice issues in its prohibition we are the ones who best understand that the prohibition needs to end. And so we very much appreciate the support of everybody out there bringing us to the public eye, including uh, people like you, Michael Peterson. So thank you so much uh, for having me on today. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm grateful for you taking the time today. I know that you're probably a much busier man than I am. So uh, I'm just grateful that you sat down and uh, gave me your thoughts. It was informative, um, very mindful, and I, I certainly learned a lot. I talked to a lot of people in the industry, and this was one of the best interviews I've had. So thank you for that. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks once again for listening to the Canadian Cannabis Update podcast. If you have a story that you'd like to share about the cannabis space, I would love to hear from you. Hit me up at CanadianCannabisUpdate at gmail.com or my website, CannabisUpdate.ca. And if you want to find out more about Canadian Cannabis Update and all of the other podcasts in the Cannabis Media Collective, check us out on Twitter at CanMedCall, just like Cannabis Media Collective, but abbreviated. And you can also find out more about us on Facebook, Instagram, and every podcast-related streaming site in the known universe. Check us out, the Cannabis Media Collective. All right, hit it, Ember. The media contributors within the Cannabis Media Collective do our very best to remain as accurate as possible, but take no responsibility for any inaccurate details or facts. If a story interests you, we're glad to have brought it to your attention, but please take the time to research the details for yourself.